You're listening to X-Ray. I'm Jefferson Smith. And in studio right now, we are honored to be joined by the outgoing, well, maybe outgoing, head of Latino Network, now candidate for Portland City Council, Carmen Rubio. Good morning. Good morning, Jefferson. It's nice to see you. In July, you entered the race to replace Amanda Fritz. You began your career working with Commissioner Serena Cruz. You worked with Portland Mayor Tom Potter and also with Nick Fish. You then became the executive director of Latino Network in 2009, it says here. And you grew the nonprofit budget from a half a million dollars to $10 million. If elected, you would be the Portland's first uh, Latinx, Latina uh, commissioner. Uh, let's start. Well, first of all, tell people who you are to the extent I didn't. And why you're running. Yeah. So I'm um, very excited to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And um, I'm running because I really believe that our city council should be reflective of all of us in Portland. What are we missing? What are decisions that are being made by the city council? If we had nameless, faceless, personality-free robots mm -hmm. who are occupying those five chairs, uh, what would be missed or what is being missed right now? Because in your mind, it's as you mentioned, it's not sufficiently representative. Well, I think if you look at Portland um, and how it's changed demographically over the last um, 20, even 10, even five, years, it's uh, who we look at to our city leaders are not reflective of who the Port Portland as a whole is today. And um, just look at our schools. Schools are an an excellent indicator of what our emerging uh, civic, civically engaged public is going to look like. And our institutions aren't reflective of the young people coming up in the ranks, of the families that are um, moving to Portland because they want to live in this great city. And my goal is to do whatever I can to make Portland that much more reflective of the community that it's supposed to serve. And I'll ask, what are those kinds of things? What do we got to do to make it more reflective? Or what's at stake? So some of it, I... I even without, I mean, I don't have to be, mm -hmm. I don't have to be too obtuse. I mean, some of it is, in fact, having exemplars, having having people who uh, share some degree of lived experience that right. make people feel like they belong, that That's help right. them imagine wielding power in the context in the city and the community where they live. Uh, what are some of the decisions in particular where you think that that set of considerations uh, is particularly important? Well, I think if you look at issues that are impacting us today, like affordable housing, homelessness, um, development in neighborhoods um, that are uh, non-traditional neighborhoods where Portland uh, city planners have traditionally focused on, um, that's what we should really be doing and looking at how Portland, uh, where people are living, where, where areas are for opportunity to bring in uh, neighborhood folks and communities in a different way to be part of the planning that's happening. Um, in the last 106 years, we've only had, I believe, eight women elected to city council and three people of color. And one of those is a woman of color, and that's Commissioner Hardesty. And you cannot have a government that is reflective of everybody when you only have eight women in over 100 years. Mm -hmm. And so... I believe that bringing in, as you mentioned, people with more lived experience, people who um, have experiences uh, as a low-income person, as a renter, uh, as an immigrant, um, working with uh, diverse communities or being a diverse person themselves, those are the kind of eyes that we need on policy so that the policy is more reflective and responsive to what people need now. 
You brought up affordable housing. Let's start there. What is the city doing that is insufficient? What are we doing wrong with respect to affordable housing? Or it might be saying, no, no, we just need more of the same. And in fact, one of the related questions of this is you've worked for you've worked in the belly of the beast. You've worked for government. Mm -hmm. So maybe what you are is the keep it going candidates or continue the trajectory, not do everything the same, but Mm -hmm. roughly continue the the trajectory of the city. Is there anything the city's doing wrong? I honestly don't think the city itself is doing anything wrong. I think that we, over the course of the last few decades, have really discovered and really been able to spotlight and shed light on the different kinds of challenges that different people, different populations have around housing. Some, it's, you know, they're one paycheck away from being on the street. Some, it's about foreclosure prevention. Some, um, it's they just need, you know, that little bit of rent assistance to get it, get them through the next couple months so that until they get back on their on the on their feet we don't have a single silver bullet strategy to this issue and I think that's part of the problem that um, has contributed to this um, alongside multiple decades of disinvestment from the federal government as a backdrop to this right so before where we were just basically treading water then the city and the county and the state were making up for that by helping us tread water and housing now we're sinking because of this and and because of the national landscape as well so so what I would suggest is that we stay the course. I think we have good ideas. There's always room for innovation. What's the best idea? What's the best thing we're doing? Well, we're not doing anything dumb. What are we doing that's smart? Well, I can tell you one thing that I see every day. As the director of a nonprofit, um, we focus on, we're, as one of the contractors for the city and the county that disperses rent assistance to families in need and individuals in need, we run out of that every single month. And if we were not um, carefully uh, parsing that out over the whole course of the year, we would probably run out in the first quarter easily. The need is there. Um, It's a terrible feeling having to turn away people because we have run out of funds to help them literally survive. And so one strategy absolutely is um, rent assistance. You brought up the your work with the Latino Network. How do you grow an organization from half a million dollars to ten million dollars? Where are you getting the money, and what did you? What was the transformation of the organization? Well, I would have to say that um, multiple things came together. Uh, one is that. Um, I was fortunate enough to have experience um, navigating uh, the ca- the county and the city. Because that's probably where most of the money's coming from, right? There's, like, yes, like a to, good to percentage. Get from half a million to ten million dollars is not because you do a Kickstarter, right? Right. Because you <laughs> start true. getting large county and city contracts. Yes. Was it mostly city contracts, county contracts, uh, state county contract, contracts, county contracts? Uh, primarily, because uh, a lot of our work is. Um, on the education and family stability side. And yeah, contracts do what? What kind of stuff do you take on and say, we can do this work better than whoever's doing it now, sure. so give us the money to do I it. I can give you um, the general um, overview of, of what the buckets of our work are. Yeah. And, uh, we uh, do work. We were founded in 96 uh, by a, co- a group of community Latino, Latinx leaders who uh, didn't feel like investments in our community were commensurate to the, the growing, the growth in the yeah. community. And so... Um, they were right. They absolutely right, and so they focus on advocacy and organizing uh, different Latinx organizations uh, to advocate for more investment and uh, better supports for these families in schools, county, city, uh, state, and um, over time. Um, we became a convener of sorts around these issues. Um, then one of our leading organizations, Oregon Council for Hispanic Advancement, OCHA, closed their doors um, in the um, I'm maybe 2006-7-ish. And uh, that was a 25-year organization that uh, provided a lot of 
valuable family supports. Um, and when they closed their doors, uh, we saw a need to step into that footprint and rebuild that lost capacity of 25 years. And that's 25 years of advocacy yeah. that built that organization, 25 years of families feeling safe and a place that they had a place to go, um, 25 years of com- uh, leadership of when something went down, people came to Ocha to, to serve as that um, influencer in the community. Why did Ocha die? I there are probably a lot of reasons, but I think that they just didn't have um, the internal uh, financial supports didn't to have continue the it. <laughs> so, and they end what year? I believe I'm not sure, but yeah. probably around 2007. I would okay. say. Okay, so just a couple of years before a couple of years before you take yes. over at, at Arlington. Yes. And so the so your areas you said were uh, service delivery, advocacy. Was there a third area, or were there multiple areas of service? Well, delivery? when we went, so when um, when we uh, when I started at Latino Network, we started to rebuild that capacity. So we do early child programs, we do um, in school programs, um, K twelve, um, parent engagement. Um, college prep. We also do work with um, adjudicated youth and youth system impacted families uh, to prevent recidivism um, and to um, also develop some life skills. We provide safety net services like energy assistance and housing rental assistance, foreclosure prevention. Um, And then we also do advocacy, which is one of our strongest um, areas and the undergirding of a lot of our work. And what did you do that let you know, or when did you know you were successful? What were mo- How did you evaluate your success? I believe that um, I felt like we were succeeding uh, when young people came back and told us that if not for our help or support, it made a difference in their ability to graduate from high school, or parents who told us that you know, you, you know, your staff working alongside us and treating with us with dignity and respect and not like a client, not charity, but really as a partner. Um, now I, I have tools to, to self-determine my own future and I feel confident to go advocate um, to my local elected official about this or go to the school board about this and advocate for my child. That's when I felt that we were succeeding. What was the hardest part of the gig? Uh, sweating payroll when we were when we were a smaller organization there was a special kind of pain that nonprofit directors in that size you know that yes it's it's a challenge what was the thing you're proudest of the proudest thing I'm I'm proud of is that what you said yeah what were you proudest of oh um I think I'm proud of like the incredible talent that we have at the network um we have so many young people that are graduating and coming to work for us as their first job or, or folks who work for us for a while, they go somewhere else and they want to come back because they know that it's a special place to be. It's one of the few places, um, workplaces, I would say, in the state of Oregon where you can, as a Latinx person, come in and feel completely affirmed every day because you see everyone around you or a lot of people around you that look like you um, but also you are nourished because you're giving back to the community particularly in this national landscape the uh, what was the biggest mistake that you made that I made oh I made a lot of mistakes sure Um, I would say 
easily the first mistake I made um, as a new ED with zero experience um, walking in the door is uh, thinking that um, not listening to my staff. That was a great, um, and, and not taking the time to really get to know them before I started making cha changes as a new executive d director. I came in and thought I, you know, oh, we need to rebrand or we need to do something different and change it. And that was, I got the biggest slap down that I've ever experienced. And it was, and rightly so, um, that was a really important lesson about listening and learning things first and making um, thoughtful suggestions and um, really developing relationships, doing your homework before you tackle something big. Because in the end, it might not be the right thing that you thought in the first place. You listen to Extra. I'm Jefferson Smith. We're here with Carmen Rubio, candidate for Portland City Council. At this point, still unopposed. Anybody announced uh, announced for the race? There are a couple. You don't know who they are. Um, they, they maybe haven't filed. They maybe haven't filed paperwork with the, uh, uh, with the one city has state. filed with OEA. Um, the other, I um, I'm not sure. All right. And what is what do you think you bring to the gig? And my guess is you'll say something like, "Well, my years of experience of working with the community um, and a new sure. a new voice, yeah. and I've also have, I've inside and outside experience." So I can guess some of those things. Mm -hmm. and my next question is going to be, which I can pause in between. But next question is going to be, "What do you you started out?" at Latino Network you said as a new executive director there are mistakes mm -hmm. you made because it was your first time doing that mm -hmm. what do you think you might not be ready for that's a really good question um, I think that I might not be ready for a lot of the um, maybe the structures that are in place that I, I mean I know that there are a lot of um, you know rules and um uh, regulations connected to this office and what the city can and cannot do, jurisdictional things. I think that is something that will be um, interesting for me to learn about. Um, one thing about nonprofits is although we are very much strapped for, for funds a lot and we're constantly fundraising to do our work, you do have a, a bit of some of creativity in the work. You can really design programs that are super responsive to the community. So I'm really interested in figuring out how to do that. I know that this, you know, the city is a huge bureaucracy. So I expect that there are going to be challenges with moving quickly, but I have a fire lit in me to make sure that the urgency is there. What does fundraising for your campaign look like? There's right now significant discussion at the city, at the state level about campaign finance limitations as well as about public financing. How are you funding your campaign mm -hmm. and how are you approaching those issues? So I'm participating in the Open and Accountable Elections Program at the city um, after a lot of careful thought. Um, also, our organization, Latino Network, um, who's also very civically engaged, uh, we were a big uh, supporter of this, this new endeavor. And so um, a lot of our staff time um, was, uh, you know, included so that we could make sure that the experiences of people like us were reflected um, and were able to access that program. So um, I'm proud to be one of the first people that filed. I'm not the only p person that filed, but... Um, but and this, really, is the or, this is Portland's public funding uh, yes. process, worked on it for years to get it. To, yes. It, it, yeah. Amanda Fritz is one of the pioneers, mm -hmm. one of the people that pushed it. And remind people how it works. Like, what do you have to do and how much money sure. do you get? So to you, you can you can register uh, to participate in the program, but that doesn't mean you're qualified. Once you register, you're um, required to find or to 
have 250 Portland donors um, give you any amount of money. I think it's the the baseline. Maybe it's five dollars. Yeah. Um, all the way up to 250, you have a, a contribution cap of 250 dollars. Um, if you can have two, find 250 Portlanders that are willing to invest in your campaign um, to demonstrate that you have broad support in the city, then you qualify for the match. Um, that match states that the first 50 dollars of every Portland donor. Um, gets matched six to one and that allows you to be competitive um, with folks that um, who are not in this in this um, program because another component of this program is that we don't take PAC money and we don't take big money from business and we also have a campaign contribution or a campaign uh, limit of $250,000 overall and what was that decision like you said after careful consideration that's the kind of thing that somebody running for often says about any number of things but I could imagine there actually being careful consideration because as someone who's run you know, a seven-figure organization, excuse me, an eight-figure uh, mm-hmm. budget organization is someone, I mean, I can imagine Northwell's Health Foundation, Jesse Beeson wanting to fund your campaign. I can imagine a number of people, uh, and, and they would have put, you know, probably five figures, maybe six into the mm-hmm. into the race. It had to have been a real decision to do it. What was that yes. decision like? What was the discussion like? Who are you talking to and getting advice from before you decided, yeah, I'm going to run public? I'm talking to a lot of um, very respected community leaders um, in this community, um, a lot of um, leaders of color. Um, um, who have been elected and who have not been elected. Was anybody arguing on the other side? Anybody who said to you, you know, you ought to make it easier on yourself. Go and, you know, gobble up checks, you know, one to $10,000 at a time, put together $500,000, put together a million dollars, scare anybody else out of the race because you're going to be able to put together a decent war chest pretty quickly. I did hear a little bit of that, but not necessarily for those exact reasons, but more they weren't quite sure if the program was going to be ready in time yet. Mm-hmm. Or we're, we're going to be the first. Then what if there are kinks to work out? And then when we're caught in this um, hard place, if it's not, and we're going to have to do something different anyway. But, um, but, but yeah, I think that there are uh, other ways that you can think of. You know, there's an in-kind contribution limit that you wouldn't have to be beholden to, um, even if you ran a grassroots campaign without participating. So yeah, there are a lot of considerations, but ultimately. I needed to walk the talk, right? And that's, you know, this is what um, my organization and a lot of community members told us what was important is to make pathways more accessible to people like me or people like the folks that I work with to run and win. So that's what I'm hoping to do. How do you see right now the politics of the city council that we have right now? How would, if you were going to try to describe the dynamic, you know, in an elevator or even over lunch, how would you describe the dynamic? And I will say, you just got a cringe face when I asked the question, <laughs> and maybe not, not necessarily because they're cringeworthy, but maybe because you cringe at asking, answering the question. But go ahead. No, I'm I'm cringing a little bit because it's such a complex um, form of government. Yeah, and I feel like structurally the form of government has set up dynamics that otherwise probably would not be there in that same way. Having worked in the building before and also having worked in a different form of government at the county, um, the differences are very stark. I mean, um, I think that we are the last form of uh, commission form of government of our size in the country. And you think you'd rather change it? I would absolutely change it, yes. And you would rather change it for the same reasons that the City Club came out with their recommendations that it would increase representation? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Do you think it is also that commissioners are unfit to run bureaus? I don't know that these commissioners are, but I, what I would say is that over time, um, you have commissioners, and it's it's challenging to find someone to run who has 
you know, executive experience, um, uh, legislative experience and administrative experience all rolled into one. And when it works, it really works, this form of government. I, you know, we've seen um, amazing leaders who have set a vision around something and gotten it done. But um, oftentimes it's not working as well as it could be. And there are ways that our government could be running in, uh, more efficiently or that allow and free up our bureau directors to be creative um, and f- allow our leadership, our elected leadership, to be creative and vision for the city together as a whole without focusing or, or facing the restrictions um, or responsibilities of just watching out for your own bureaus all the time. Uh, the now deceased being Sheldon, former head of the Portland Planning Commission, uh, somebody, an architect in town, somebody who was a really engaged city planner something that he said and he he helps set up uh, the organization that is now called Portland Forward uh, and he said Jeff in most cities the developers run things transportation decisions uh, zoning decisions uh, huge financial decisions are essentially run by the big developers Portland has been the city that has been different now as part of his analysis one of the reasons it's been different is in fact that we have city councilors who are directly accountable to mm-hmm. voters mm-hmm. who are making real decisions mm-hmm. so that it isn't just the it isn't just the developer who's really figured out how to navigate the system who can reward through a revolving door somebody who used to work in housing somebody who used to work in transportation somebody who used to work at the bureau of development services and say hey if you can do a good job at the bureau of development services afterwards you can leave and go work for you know the goodman brothers go work for somebody else who's been a mark wiener mm-hmm. you know been a mark wiener client and uh, and that's how most cities work the concern, the, the the pros, the arguments in favor, I think the City Club laid them out very well, the arguments in favor of changing the form of government. The counter-argument uh, is, what do we lose in terms of democracy? What do we lose in terms of people? It, because if we lose, if we move to district-based elections, mm-hmm. city commissioners lose power. Mm-hmm. That either means we have a strong mayor or we have an unelected king. We have a city manager who's running things who has no small-D democratic accountability, except for maybe you talk to your city councilor who maybe talks to a bunch of other city councilors who maybe gets that person fires, fired. That probably only happens with a significant problem facing the city, with a scandal or some other, some other real big failure, downward economy they're not even accountable for. How do we preserve... Uh, small d democratic engagement our history of civic engagement which is what has made is the thing that has made portland special how do we preserve that in a context of either a strong mayor or an elected king that's an a unelected real, that, king excuse well me. that's a really good question and i would say that we would probably have to think about what's right for Portland. It doesn't have to be that we're lifting a form of government from specifically Seattle or some other place and then plopping it right. I think it's going to take a thoughtful um, examination of what are those best things we love about Portland, but also it's time to 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 make it more accessible to people, to make it more accessible to all parts of Portland. I'm not saying that the Commission for Urban Government do- doesn't have its pros. It absolutely does when all cylinders are firing. I absolutely think that it does. But most often, that's not the case. So even though that that, you know, that it that it can work. We need to weigh the the costs and benefits, and what are we losing by not changing? We're losing representation in East County or East Portland. We're losing representation from younger people and from people of color that maybe um, 
haven't had a, a road or a path before. We're losing representation from strong neighborhood voices in all parts of the city, rather than folks that know the system, know how to run, and know how to win at an at-large seat. The And I want to stick on this for a moment, because I think when we had Nick Fish sitting in that chair not too long ago, and he pointed out that Joanne Hardesty won uh, in the context of the current system, in context of the current campaign finance system, and is now is running bureaus, right, is not just a legislator. And I made a prediction. I made a prediction when uh, when Joanne Loretta Smith were running that I saw that it, that it, when they when that election was finished, that I believed it would fuel the growth of uh, the growth of the movement to topple Portland's former government for one of two reasons: either because they would support that, or because uh, implicit racism and sexism would start making the argument, oh city councilors aren't really fit to run a bureau. It was one thing when it was like white guys like Jim Francisconi, they could run a bureau. Um, but somebody like Joanne Hardesty, they can listen to the community. They can make votes on stuff, but we're not ready for them to run transportation. They're not ready to run police. They're not ready to run bureau development services. And that and so that became my prediction of what was going to happen. I still, and you can respond to that if you want to, but I still have this question. Yeah, I see the downsides of our current system. I see downsides of any system. But when you combine, if we combine the elimination of, of strong city councilors mm-hmm. and the, therefore the elimination of direct small D democratic accountability of city commissioners, of people who run bureaus, and you combine that with a declining respect and investment in neighborhood associations that much of the impetus for that of course is hey wait a minute we got to race this background as a city we got to do something to bend the arc of history towards justice but what we might be doing if we do both of those things is bending the arc away from democracy the very same things that we're starting to help our city uh, better reflect that we need to have power in the city better reflect our community some of that was even possible in the context of a strong democracy and we might be weakening that democracy. My concern is that we're weakening, that we could be weakening our civic engagement. How do we strengthen it? How do we keep that from happening? I abs- I, I actually argue the opposite um, to that exact point about I think that we are strengthening democracy by going and focusing on district. We're allowing more people at a local level to get involved in city council. Most people, I can tell you right now, the folks that I work with every day, the participants that come through our programs, they don't, a lot of them don't know or don't care where the service, they just have some needs that they want to get met. They, it's, it's incumbent upon government to figure out how we work together and, and jurisdictions about how we provide a seamless um, service for our Portland residents. And so I would say that that's probably inside baseball to a lot of us. I think that for the everyday Portland resident, they are wondering why we're still in a housing crisis. Why isn't the urgency there? Um, how can we get better services? Why do I still have potholes in my neighborhood? Why are there fatalities um, you know, on major arterials in East Portland? Those are the things that they care about and that you could get more focus on if you have districts. The in the bottle example, I, mean, I can move on to the next thing because we don't have too much time. And thank you so much for being with us. Yeah. Uh, in the pothole example, then you could call your elected official, and they wouldn't only, and they'd be the person in charge, right? They'd be the person, or at least one of the people that you voted for would be in charge. Somebody who you voted for would be in charge of that thing. You could solve it. But I totally hear where you're coming from. Uh, climate change. 
we now have reports that our state and our city are not on track to meet climate targets. And the reason is because of automobile transportation. That is the area that we haven't changed. And meanwhile, we look at transportation investments. The highest priority of transportation investments are highway expansions in the in the corridor through Moda Center mm -hmm. and then uh, across the Columbia River. Mm -hmm. How do you judge how do you feel about the Columbia River crossing and how do you feel about expanding the expanding the I5 freeway? You know, well Number one, I should say that I am always in favor of ways to, um, you know, remove congestion from our community and focus on alternative transportation. So that's number one. That's a given. Um, and then the second I'm going to look at is um, if I would were to tackle an issue like this is to look at who are the impacted communities? Is there displacement that's, you know, an unintended consequence? You know, um, were there pre-existing uh, commitments that were never met um, with other developments such as in the Albina plan. So, um, yeah, I think it's a real issue. It's one that is... And where do you land on it? I'm interested in learning more. <laughs> and that's why I, I declared so early. I'm right yeah. now, as we speak, I'm meeting with key stakeholders, but I am very concerned about climate, climate change for our community. We should be leading in this area. And um, I hope to make sure and ensure that we do so. Why do you think we have fewer bike riders than we did five years ago? That's a good question. I would say maybe one of the reasons is safety. And, uh, you know, we've, we've had an influx of people moving to the city of Portland. And um, it's a real, real issue that we need to jump into right away. Yeah, I've wondered. We had a, we had a text in uh, somebody who was guessing that it was maybe maybe Portland is being, and I'm quoting, uh, being invaded by non-riders, not fewer riders, but more non-riders moving in. Another note, maybe it's too dangerous to ride. Uh, people who ride can might be of lower income, lower income folks are moving out because of housing prices, rich people who don't ride moving in. I'd argue another one is just gas prices got lower. Mm -hmm. and, and with lower gas prices, you know, some people don't feel the, don't feel the strain. Anything I should have asked you that I didn't? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm just really um, interested in um, making sure that we have also representative governments um, across the board from top to bottom, not just um, horizontally, but also laterally. So I'm interested in making sure that we have representative Portlanders in all levels of government as well. I think the the day that, that true representation happens, um, you know, I would love for Latino Network to be out of business because we're fully represented in all our, our civic institutions and we have a healthy democracy. So um, maybe that's more of a statement, um, but um, I really appreciate uh, you lifting up opportunities for candidates from the community to talk. Jefferson. Have you endorsed uh, Ted Wheeler for mayor? I have not endorsed Do you have an opinion anyone. on the matter? Uh, about endorsements? Uh, you have an opinion on Ted Wheeler as mayor? What do you think he's doing right? What he's doing wrong? I don't have an opinion, <laughs> uh, but I will tell you that um, I I appreciate that he is um, taking uh, stronger stances around some of these issues with um, uh, the hate mongers that have come to our city. We got a minute and a half. There's one thing we should get to. I, I nibbled at it, but didn't really ask a question about it. And that is the neighborhood association stuff. Mm -hmm. The efforts uh, to uh, under with, with some of the same motivations as you're making the argument for for go, moving away from a, a strong city council or former government. Mm -hmm. And that is the. Uh, but the concern for folks is wait a minute. Neighborhood association has been one of the routes for people to engage. One of the 
routes to maintain accountability. How do you feel about neighborhood associations? What do we ought to do? I feel like neighborhood associations, just like other institutions, are vital places for civic engagement around the city. And um, back in, you know, uh, during Potter's administration, uh, neighborhood associations and uh, communities of color came together around a project called Community Connect, and uh, where we talked about a long-term plan to open up the circle beyond neighborhood associations for more equity um, and for more representation of other kinds of organizations. So this concept is not not a new concept. It's a very old one that that people built together. So the concept is good. Final word? Uh, just, you know, we can really make Portland a place that represents all of us. And I ha- I'm a manager at heart, but I'm a progressive with um, a vision and a love for this city. And I think that we can do great things. Carmen Rubio, candidate for city council. Thank you so much for being with us.